Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you translate Trump. Well, we need some translating this morning and this week, uh, some understanding and some perspective. Joining me today is Brian Kennedy. He's the president of the American Strategy Group. We're going to talk to him about Donald Trump, the FBI raid on Michael Cohen's office, the possible U.S. response to the chemical attack in Syria, the appointment of John Bolton, a host of other things going on. Then uh, we'll uh, change pace a little bit. Uh, You know I love the world of education. Very interested in education in America. Been working on it for 50 years now. So I want to look at what uh, I regard as the most significant test we have in America, the best indicator of uh, American educational achievement, and that's the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. It's a test given to some thousands, a number of thousands of students around the country um, every year, uh, and it, uh, it tells us how we're doing in math and reading. Uh, Chester Finn, Checkery Finn, who is my former assistant secretary, will join us. He's a distinguished senior fellow and president emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, which is an organization that gives us lots of valuable education statistics and studies. He's also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute of Stanford University, and he'll join me to discuss the, the latest NAEP results, how the kids do. A lot to digest here. First, let me get some thoughts off my uh, head and uh, send them out your way, and let me know what you think about them. i got several topics this morning. Um, just uh, fresh uh, off watching the Zuckerberg hearings. Uh, I thought Zuckerberg did quite well, by the way. And um, what somebody commented that a lot of the senators were fumbling in their questions to Zuckerberg and said, uh, reminded one commentator of my grandfather was trying to use a flip phone. You know, I mean, they don't know how it works. They, you know, yeah. they, they're not technically adept or not technologically up to date and so on. And he ran circles around a lot of them who showed their technological literacy. I'm somewhat sympathetic to those guys, too. Well, give yourself credit. You're good on tech. You okay. use a lot of it. Well, I, I use a fair amount of it, yeah. but um, I'm still a novice, I think. But there were some moments, and I thought the most uh, difficult moment for uh, Zuckerberg, uh, and a very impressive moment or minutes uh, for Ted Cruz was the questioning by Senator Cruz of Zuckerberg. Uh, it reminds you uh, just how good Cruz is. Cruz is not a great public speaker. He doesn't have a great presence, but he's a brilliant legal mind, and uh, as a kind of prosecutor of a case, making a case, uh, logical consistency. He's very, very good. And the way he bore in on uh, Zuckerberg and bias was, I thought, a, um, a master class. Let's just take a couple of minutes of that. It's really worth listening to. I've listened to it three or four times now, and I'll make it a fifth. Let's listen with me. Mr. Zuckerberg, I will say there are a great many Americans who I think are deeply concerned that, that Facebook and other tech companies are engaged in a pervasive pattern of bias and political censorship. Uh, There have been numerous instances with Facebook. In May of 2016, Gizmodo reported that Facebook had purposefully and routinely suppressed conservative stories from trending news, including stories about CPAC, including stories about Mitt Romney, including stories about the Lois Lerner IRS scandal, including stories about Glenn Beck. In addition to that, Facebook has initially shut down the Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day page, has blocked a post of a Fox News reporter, has blocked over two dozen Catholic pages, and most recently blocked Trump supporters Diamond and Silk's page with 1.2 million Facebook followers after determining their content and brand were, quote, unsafe to the community. To a great many Americans, that appears to be a pervasive 
pattern of political bias. Do you agree with that assessment? Senator, let me say a few things about this. First, I understand where that concern is coming from because Facebook and the tech industry are located in Silicon Valley, which is an extremely left-leaning place. And uh, this is actually a concern that I have and that I try to root out in the company is making sure that we don't have um, any bias in the work that we do. And I think it is a fair concern that um, that people would would at least wonder about. Let me ask this question. Are, Are you aware of any ad or page that has been taken down from Planned Parenthood? Senator, I'm, I'm not, but let me just... Uh, how about moveon.org? Sorry? How about moveon.org? I'm not specifically aware of those. How about things. any Democratic candidate for office? I, I'm not specifically aware. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. In your testimony, you say that you have fifteen to 20,000 people working on security and content review. Do you know the political orientation of those fifteen to 20,000 people engaged in content review? Uh, no, Senator. We do not generally ask people about their political orientation when they're joining the company. So as CEO, have you ever made hiring or firing decisions based on political positions or what candidates they supported? No. Why was Palmer Lucky fired? That is a specific personnel matter that seems like it would be inappropriate to You just made a here. specific representation that you didn't make decisions based on political views. Well, that I, can, I can commit that it was not because of a political view. Do you know of those fifteen to 20,000 people engaged in content review, how many, if any, have ever supported financially a Republican candidate for office? Senator, I do not know that. Okay, you heard uh, Senator Cruz there just drilling in, drilling down, Claude, just really, you know, focusing in on it. Had the cases of, you know, uh, suppression of conservative views, Chick-fil-A, Celebration Day, uh, Fox uh, Reports, uh, even Diamond and Silk, um, uh, but no parallel censorship of, or suppression of view of uh, MoveOn.org or Planned Parenthood. Note a contradiction or close to contradiction in the answer. I mean, I you know Zuckerberg was scrambling, but he starts by saying, "Look, I understand uh, you need to understand Silicon Valley is an extremely left-leaning place." Well, that's right, it is, and so uh, Facebook is part of that part of that culture, and I think that's a fair comment. Uh, then he says that he's been trying to root out bias. Uh, then Cruz asks him, well, when you interview people for content review, the 20,000 people, Claude, 20,000 people on the staff who do content review. I mean, this is like the population of South Dakota. And I'm know? sure it's necessary. I mean, as many yeah. Facebook users, as much content is put content up there. Content review, 20,000. When you, when you hire these people, do you, you know, look for political bias? No, no, no. We don't uh, ever... Uh, uh, you know, uh, ask them their political views. Well, how do you root out the bias if you don't ask people? Uh, maybe once you see it, you you know you act. But it's plain to see. I mean, I think I do think that Facebook has this problem, which is that it uh, tilts left. Some people at Facebook know they do, and they're trying to work on it. I think Zuckerberg's one of them. Credit to him. Others do not. But I think that was the toughest moment for Zuckerberg, and I think a very telling moment. And as a conservative, to me, it was uh, it was the most important moment. Now, there are other things about Facebook that uh, bother me, but it is uh, this uh, tilt toward the left uh, and the suppression and content review of conservative views 
the notion that these are not uh, objective. There was another point where Senator Sass, Ben Sass, was saying, well, look, your criterion is you don't want to do hateful speech. Hateful speech, what's hateful speech? Speech that causes people to feel that they are hated or disliked or makes them extremely uncomfortable. And Sass said, well, what about people who speak uh, vehemently and strongly about pro-life, their pro-life position? Wouldn't that make uh, some women who just had abortions uh, feel very uncomfortable, feel like this is hate speech? What about that? And I think that's a fair question, too. So I I think the way Sass framed it was, you know, are you a First Amendment company, everybody gets to speak, or are you uh, somewhat less than that, that you want a forum in which certain views are not allowed, other views aren't? What is your criteria for that? Uh, Or what is your criterion for that? Anyway, uh, boy, it showed showed, uh, Cruz at his best, remind you why Cruz is a hero to, uh, to conservatives, good for Ted Cruz. Well, one thing about that moment, um, you know, was the fact that I don't know whether anyone would <laughs> would necessarily care or not. But in a lot of the liberal circles, uh, they believe that the media bias uh, that Republicans or conservatives say exists is false. So when they hear fake news or they hear, you know, Facebook's suppressing conservative views, they don't think it's real. And so for Zuckerberg to say what he said and for Cruz to point out what he pointed out, you know, at least the acknowledgement of the fact that, yes, Silicon Valley has yes. left. Yes. And, yes, we have suppressed way more conservative voices and to basically no uh, liberal voices, whether they'll care or not, but at least the awareness. It's a huge admission. Exactly. It's a huge admission. Uh, admission against interest, as they say in, in, in the law. But to bring uh, Mark Zuckerberg to the point where he says, oh, there is this bias. Absolutely. Because I have liberal friends, family right. members, who do, they don't think that the liberal bias in media yeah. exists. And yeah. I work in media, and I try to point this yeah, stuff yeah, out. Yeah, I don't sure. believe it exists. No, it's, just, it's <laughs> as plain as uh, anything sitting in front of you. And good for Zuckerberg for admitting right. it. And I think this is a challenge for the company moving forward. Well, let's go to the next uh, issue. Again, there's so many things out there. Firing Bob Mueller. Should he do it? No, shouldn't do it. The president should not fire Bob Mueller uh, or Rod Rosenstein. He could fire Rod Rosenstein without firing Bob Mueller, though, certainly. And I could I, I see that one more clearly uh, than, um, than firing Bob Mueller. There'd be a kind of head faint there. If he fired Rosenstein, Rosenstein, everyone would believe that was a preface to firing Mueller. But he could fire Rod Rosenstein because he's not happy with the way he's running the department, either the way he's doing it or Sessions. Uh, and it wouldn't be a prelude to firing Mueller. He just replaces Rosenstein, and that's it. The reason he doesn't want to fire Mueller is if he die and Coulter here is absolutely right, it makes Mueller a martyr. People go crazy. Republicans will go crazy. You know, the liberals will go off the charts. He'll be, he'll be a martyr. And my gosh. Meanwhile, this guy doesn't seem to have much of a case against uh, Donald Trump, at least not in. Do you remember this, Claude? I, mean, I want you to go way back in your memory. Do you remember the time when the discussion in this town was about uh, Trump and the campaign colluding with the Russians? Right. Remember? Right. Way, yeah. way back. Way back. Before when, we were talking yeah. about Stormy <laughs> Daniels and Stormy Weather. and Right. Uh, he doesn't seem to have anything there. Right. So let the guy come out with the report. It may be a big thud. Uh, don't, you know, don't give up that opportunity. If, if he comes out with something and it looks strained or small or trivial or just not much... Given the build-up to what yeah, could be, it, it'll, if it comes out small, it'll go away. It'll, nothing, go away. Right. it'll go away. Meanwhile, if you want it big, you fire Mueller. So I just, I just wouldn't do it. Related to that point, our friend Byron York. I've been reading a lot lately, Claude, as you can tell. 
says we're talking all about Mueller, we're talking all about Cohen, we're talking about Stormy Daniels, talking about all these things, we're talking about Syria, we're talking about nobody is talking about collusion anymore. Right. Not even the Democrats are talking about collusion. So what do you know? The putative reason for all of this stuff, collusion in the campaign, is gone. Evanescent disappeared. Amazing. Amazing to me. So um, don't fire Mueller. Do yourself a favor, Mr. President. Fire Rosenstein if you want. But you don't have to fire Mueller. Syria. Uh, put me down on the skeptic list here. At least put me down on the list for saying, you know, th- this kind of savagery and butchery is horrible. I have said before, there are certain people you can't tolerate, you know, living in the same world with them. But this is a uh, sovereign nation, even though we don't like it, Syria. They elected this guy. Uh, what's our plan? I, I want to know the plan. And I want to know that if you take out Assad, what, who replaces Assad? What replaces Assad? And what happens to the Christians in Syria, who I believe are now can right. exist and thrive and pray? But if you put some, you know, if it's replaced by an ISIS group or another group, um, maybe the end of the Christians. might feel good to blow up this guy and a lot of his people, but um, what's the plan? How does it serve our interests? That's the question. It's, 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 uh, you'll hear Brian Kennedy talking about that. In our, uh, in our interview today, and I think Brian is right about it. So I need to know more. I need to see, uh, I need to see more. Uh, one more thing about the uh, Zuckerberg hearing. I was listening to the senators. I was reminded by just what an old ideologue, pain-in-the-butt ideologue Patrick Leahy is, Senator <laughs> Leahy from Vermont. He was just uh, so tedious. And, you know, and, uh, but the guy who's become really the real goof, I think, lately is, uh, is Cory Booker. Uh, his shenanigans and theatrics in regard to Jeff Sessions really ticked me off, but now he's, you know, he, he's talking all about diversity at Facebook. And diversity, of course, means diversity of skin color, more intellectual diversity, more d- diversity of point of view would be a, a desideratum, I think, a good thing. But uh, at one point, uh, Booker said, uh, I wonder if civil rights groups might audit your diversity. And, uh, and Zuckerberg embraced it, showing that liberal left mentality of the Silicon mm-hmm. Valley executive uh, yes, we'd like to do that, Senator. You really want to submit Facebook to these various diversity counters? Do you really want to do that, Mr. Zuckerberg? Anyway, I thought Cory Booker did not uh, did not particularly uh, distinguish uh, distinguish himself. One more thing. Let's uh, let's go back to uh, Trump world and Michael Cohen world and this. Uh, really interesting business uh, and upsetting business to me about uh, the raid on Michael Cohen's office, his home, and his hotel room at the Regency, which is a place I've hung out many times, Regency Hotel in New York. There's always somebody knocking on your door at the Regency. This this is, you know, for service or something, but this is one you don't want. (laughs) They probably didn't knock either. But, uh, you know, know, did they, you know, lawyer-client privilege? Did they overstep their bounds? What's going on here? At the end of the day, one of the things that people say that uh, Cohen may be nailed on and then they hope to squeeze Cohen to get to Trump is an illegal campaign contribution. That is, if this $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels was made to keep her quiet so as to help Donald Trump, this was in violation of FEC uh, regulations, uh, $130,000. I am now going to read from Andy McCarthy, our friend Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor uh, and a great friend of this uh, of this podcast. He starts by saying the Stormy Daniels scandal could be more perilous for Trump than the Russia investigation has been. Well, it looks like the Russia investigation has no teeth. But uh, as you're thinking about 
keep that in mind, the $130,000 payoff to Stormy Daniels is a violation of the FEC. Keep the number in mind, 130000 right? Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign was caught hiding the sources of 1,300 large campaign donations aggregating to nearly $2 million. Okay, and what was the number you wanted me to keep in mind? 130000 Okay, got it. Which is bigger? Uh, I would go with the Obama Two million, uh, number, yeah. right, yeah. The campaign also accepted more than $1.3 million in unlawful donations from contributors who had already given the legal maximum. All right, let me ask you again. What's bigger, $1.3 million uh, or 130000 I would go with the one point three. I would million. too. Yeah, I would too. And you'd get advanced level in NAEP for doing that. And we've got here. Professor Finn know. coming up coming to talk, up, about, talk that. about that. <laughs> under okay, under federal law, such campaign finance violations, if they aggregate to just twenty five thousand dollars in a calendar year, may be treated as felonies, punishable by up to five years imprisonment, with offenses involving smaller dollar amounts punishable by incarceration for a year or more. U.S. Code 30109. The Obama campaign did not have a defense. Okay. Okay. It argued in mitigation that the unlawful donations constituted a negligible fraction of the monumental amount it had raised from millions of grassroots donors. So this number is not so big because our overall number was enormous. <laughs> right. Compelling? Maybe not, but enough to convince the Obama Justice Department not to prosecute the Obama campaign. Shocking, I know, he says, ironically. (laughs) During the Christmas holiday season, right after the 2012 campaign, with Obama safely reelected and nobody paying much attention, the matter was quietly settled with the payment of a $375,000 fine. Is the $130,000 in hush money that Donald Trump's personal lawyer paid to porn star Stormy Daniels on the eve of the 2016 election a a campaign finance violation? Probably, although it's a point of contention. Even if we stipulate that it is, though, we're talking chump change compared to what went on with Obama. Mm. Just think about that. As that lawyer, I go on here with, uh, with Andy McCarthy, as that lawyer Michael Cohen has discovered... What was not a crime in Obama days is the crime of the century now. <laughs> and maybe grounds for impeachment or removal. Maybe. maybe. Of course, one of the White House press corps said the other day, uh, do you think the president will resign because of all this? Yeah. Did you hear that question? No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Cohen's Rockefeller Center law office in New York City was raided by the FBI on Monday. So was his room at the Lowe's Regency Hotel on Park Avenue, where he's been staying. $130,000 is chump change compared to what Obama got away with. And John Edwards, John Edwards, paying off, you know, for his girlfriend and all that, all that hush money. So you talk about a double standard. This is, uh, you know, it's, it's screaming in your face. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's uh, jump in with Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. I am, folks, a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Brian, from the FBI raid on Michael Cohen's office to Syria, a lot to talk about here. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. How are you? Well, I'm all right. I just kind of overwhelmed with stuff, with news. You know, we're supposed to be the podcast that uh, explains Trump, translates Trump, understands Trump. What shall we talk about this morning, Brian? Uh, The raid on Michael Cohen's office, the appointment of John Bolton, the possible attack uh, on Syria, China and trade, uh, the border wall uh, uh, in the southern part of the United States, the upcoming midterms. 
or should we just go back to bed? Lock. Boy, a lot going on, isn't there? Yeah, you pick it. You I, you pick it because you and I so, talked uh, about uh, a variety of things, but stuff has happened in in the interim. Any quick reaction to the Cohen stuff? Yeah, boy, I thought that was. Uh, I mean, everybody always keeps talking about Mueller as his paragon of virtue and a representative of law and order, but it sure seems to be a very dangerous precedent to go after the president's lawyer this way. It should send a chill through the legal community that they are doing this, that even the lawyer could be intimidated. And one wonders how much of a case there is if they have to go after Cohen himself rather than Trump and any obvious wrongdoing. And for the president to be so outraged both last night and this morning sure seems justified to me. Yeah. What do uh, you think? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, you're, you're sounding like I've been researching this morning and was watching last night and all, but um, it's sounding a lot like Alan Dershowitz, my, my friend and my former professor, who said, where is the ACLU on this? By the way, there are two sides to this. I'll, I'll get to it and see what you think of the other side. But. He said, where's the ACLU on this attorney-client privilege? He said, when I take on a client, Brian, he says, when I take on a client, I said, what you say to me is sacrosanct. It is stronger than the confessional in the Catholic Church. You know, this confidentiality, it cannot be breached. And he said, for them to go barging in there, what is the burden of proof that has to be met? I mean, could they have possibly met it, that, you know, that there was no other way to get this information? Uh, and so he said, you know, th- th- that uh, Trump and his lawyers should petition the court to get these, give these documents back. Um, certain degree of outrage from Professor Dershowitz. On the other hand, uh, I listened to Jonathan Turley, whom I also respect, who said it's very rare and very unusual, but it's doable if you believe and have reason to believe and can persuade a judge that there's some cover-up of a crime. Uh, being uh, uh, done or planned or operationalized uh, by the lawyer, uh, and unless these documents are secured, uh, they will be uh, they will be destroyed. I think both would agree that there's an enormous burden of proof to uh, to be met. And as far as I can tell, on the side here of you and, and Alan Dershowitz, it seems to me that Cohen, whatever his flamboyance has been cooperative and has given the court uh, or the, the investigators everything they've asked for. So why you have to go barging in there to his uh, office, his home, and by the way, the Regency Hotel, a place where you and I have had breakfast once or twice. Uh, he's staying there, I guess, Cohen. Um, was that necessary? The president is obviously furious about this. Yes, because if there is some Russian collusion Are we to believe that Michael Cohen is the center of that and that he's been able to mastermind this on his laptop computer from it? I mean, this just doesn't sound right. This looks more like you're going to try to find something that Michael Cohen may have done wrong somewhere. Forget the sort of, you know, clean investigation. You're going to try to find something Michael Cohen may have done wrong as a way of getting him to somehow incriminate the president in something. Yeah. This, this this looks like over overreach of the most egregious. Yeah, now they will say that the reason that uh, Mueller handed it off 
to the Southern District of New York was because it wasn't in his purview. It wasn't about collusion. It wasn't about you know his investigation. But in the course of investigating it, they came across this. Uh, and so they they handed off. We need more information. We need to know more. We need to know what the what the burden was, what the standard of proof was. But I got I got to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, but, but, Go but, ahead. Yes and no. I mean, as a practical matter, these things are political, and so the mere fact that they do this is a political act on the part of Mueller and his investigative team. So politically, they meant to make the president look bad. Politically, they wanted to do the kind of things that would inspire the American left. To engage in in trying to defend this witch hunt, so we may need more information at one level, but just on its face, this seems like a bad use of of whatever legal means that they engaged in to simply go after the president once again. Yeah, and that that is something that we should be worried about. Is there anything that they can get from Michael Cohen that would bear on the future of our republic right now? Yeah. And yeah. I doubt it. And I doubt it. I think everyone will agree this was uh, fierce, uh, kind of uh, a supernova phrase we've used, word we've used before. Nuclear, intimidating. Yeah, the intimidating, nu- nuclear right. option and, you know, right. and, 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 and intimidating and certainly politically freighted, if not intended politically, huge political implications. I, I got to say one other thing on this, too, which is you know, the latest theory out there is that, well, the offense may be bank loan fraud, which is that, because Cohen has admitted he took out a, a home equity line uh, of $130,000 to, you know, to, to, to pay off uh, Stormy Daniels. And if he told the bank it was for home repairs, this could be bank fraud. My God, there have to be millions of Americans trembling. People take out these loans all the time for all sorts of things. The bank has one line on this, you know, home improvement. They're called home equity lines. And people do it to pay off their bills, to take a summer vacation, you know, to uh, buy Christmas presents, to, 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 to pay debts. Uh, and again... You know, this is the sort of thing where you could you could prosecute five million people probably, but it reminds me, and you've heard me say this before, of uh, of what Bob Novak said: the federal government comes after you, look out, because they have unlimited resources, which is what these special counsels do and have, uh, and they can find something on everybody well, when you go through you know any any multiple years of tax returns or home equity line applications. Yeah, that's no, very bad. Very, very, uh, an abuse of power, clearly. We'll see. The question is, what will the president do? And um, a lot of speculation, and I want, do want to get on other topics, uh, a lot of speculation that he will fire Mueller, or if not fire Mueller, fire Sessions, Rosenstein, and then uh, and then Mueller will be replaced thereby. Any thoughts on that? There has been, there has been an air of chaos made, made by Jeff Sessions' recusal on these things and this arm's length from main operation of the Justice Department. Right. And Sessions, Sessions has to now wonder what's best for the country. He, yeah. He's an honorable man, but an honorable man can make bad judgments about things. Yeah, well, we'll see where this goes. But, uh, you know, the stakes have been up. The heat is intense, and uh, we'll watch this thing very closely. Let's talk about Syria. Could we do that uh, for, for, for Please, a couple yeah. of minutes? So I guess one question is, you know, should we do something? And that is preceded, you know, by another question, which is, first of all, do we believe this is actually happening in Syria? 
this, you know, poison gas, the use of uh, these uh, forbidden uh, means in, in, in any kind of warfare. Uh, do we, do we well, believe this, that? This, well, it, it looks like if it is something, if it's something, it was chlorine. Right. Chlor, sort of a, chlor, a chlorine gas. So perhaps not all that complex. I mean, deadly, but one has to wonder. Recall that in February 8th of this year, Secretary Mattis announced that whereas in Syria last year we thought they used sarin gas, that in fact we now don't know whether they use sarin gas at all. And that was a a little noticed story at the time that that we had somehow got this wrong. and so one wonders today what's what's really going on in Syria. The interesting thing is whether or not uh, this is simply meant to be provocative. As a matter of high government policy, the Syrian government appears, if in fact they did it, uh, appears to use this chemical weapon in order to kill some of its rebels. Now, shooting them or otherwise bombing them would have been much easier. They know that the world becomes outraged and the American media becomes outraged when they use this, these, you know, uh, banned chemical and other type of, of bombs. They seem to do it simply to yank our chain yeah. and, to yank Tr- and to yank Trump's chain. Because they're killing them so pretty effectively has- on the, you know, with, with traditional weapons, if you will. Right. So right. What's right. the additional but reason you, they're he, doing this? Yeah. Yeah. I see the point. Yeah. Right. Easier, quicker, cheaper, just, you know, the normal way yeah. that yeah. that evil dictators kill, kill their citizens. But you won't provoke their, people. But you their won't. people. Right. It, this, was, this was for the purpose of the, the world and American media. If the president does something, I mean, the president says he wants to get out of Syria. So did they do this because they want to, when I say they, you know, the Syrian regime with their enablers, the Russians and the Iranians, are they doing this to chase the president out of Syria, to embarrass him out of Syria, or did they do it to try to keep him in Syria and to keep Syria that kind of puppet used to manipulate the American uh, political establishment? If the president does nothing, then obviously everyone will say he's a he's sympathetic to these dictators like Assad and Putin. Obviously, he doesn't know what he's doing. Obviously, he can be manipulated. Obviously, he shouldn't be the president of the United States. And he's as feckless, he as, do- he's as, feckless as Obama. Uh, he, you know, his threats are the same as Obama's red line. It means right. nothing. Right. Know. Right. And if he does do something, then he's a warmonger leading us to a president mm-hmm. who contradicts himself. It's kind of a no-win situation, isn't yeah. it? And so this looks to be the kind of thing merely designed to embarrass the president and to do evil the way evil dictators typically do. But this looks designed to manipulate American opinion against the president. And the president should be careful on how he responds, both because he doesn't know exactly what's happening, but he himself has articulated what he thinks the American interest is. And it does not include being fully engaged in Syria, a place that is both chaotic and the tool of both the Russians and the Iranians that is likely to stay that way for some time to come.
because we're not going to engage in regime change in Syria. We're not going to send an occupying force, and we're not going to engage in another war in the Middle East, the result of which will not serve the U.S. national interest. So Trump so far seems pretty sensible and measured in how he's approaching this. But you you had it set up as a as a bipolar choice, uh, one or the other. You 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 either do nothing or you do something fairly strong and dramatic. And I think it would be something stronger and more dramatic than hitting the airfields a year ago. Uh, do you have a recommendation of the president? No. The hard part about that is you can do something dramatic, and you may feel better about it, and everyone may may think you've done something. But have you done something? Yeah, right. The result of policy should be to make you better off, by you meaning America better off. We can blow up some airfields in Syria, but will that change things? Or will you simply just spend whatever or the cost of whatever ordinance you're dropping on them? Yeah. Statecraft, statecraft should be designed to achieve something other than... Feel good. Yeah, Exactly. All right. And so, so far, I think the pres- so far, I think the president has actually been engaging the, in the kind of things that make the country better off, and that is first and foremost understanding what has gone on in that part of the world, and to the extent that he can get the you know the Republicans in the Congress to help him articulate what the American interest should be and what has gone on in the Middle East over the past twenty years, and to flesh out all the mistakes we've made. And where we've gotten things right, and then to formulate strategy for the future, I think that'll be all to the good. But so far, everything seems kind of ad hoc and you know sporadic in how we think about and articulate these things. And now, now I hope that John Bolton has become the right. national security that. advisor. There'll be a more coherent expression of what America's national interest is. Okay, so it's not sufficient, even if you determine that these uh, attacks were you know, using these absolutely forbidden means, it, it doesn't follow necessarily that we should go in or bomb or anything. you got other questions you need to answer, such as what is our national interest in doing this? How does it serve our, our purposes as a nation, apart from feeling good? Syrian, well, the Syrian regime goes around killing its its uh, people every day. Yeah. If they, you know, march in or drive in a, a Syrian military and put a bullet in the heads of yeah. 50 people, is that somehow better than dropping a, you know, chemical bomb on them? Yeah, right. They're both abhor- right. They're, they're they're both abhorrent. All right, let's they go. Kill children. They, they they kill children every day. I just Either. I don't understand why right. why we're we're getting so outraged by this. Okay. But the mere fact that the media lets itself be manipulated this way. Yeah, it's no, I agree useful. with you. I agree with you. I, I'm, I'm, it's not at all clear to me what you do. But, boy, it does seem crystal clear to a lot of people, Democrats and Republicans, let's go, let's, you know, show the world that we will not tolerate the existence of, you know, this kind of thing. But um, not going to have regime change. We're not going to take out uh, Assad, I assume. That, that would seem to me to be the only thing that would make sense to at least some kind of rationale. Well, it'll get we we go all the way. We get rid of Assad. Uh, we provoke the Russians. The Russians back off. Uh, that teaches the world. But that's all very risky. You know, that's very risky stuff. Well, and, and also you replace you can re, you, you could replace Assad with, yeah, with a with a regime of radical Islamists who also seek to right. destroy America and the West. 
Right, because I, 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 I understand Christians are still exist in Syria and are you know relatively thriving compared to some other places, right? Right, and there was a time when the Syrian regime, however you know evil it was, uh, yeah. was rel- relatively in check. Yeah. And so let's get rid of Assad and replace him with a radical Islamist of the kind there is in Iran, for instance. Yeah. Because who has their 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 sights set on Syria but the Iranians? Yep. So let's replace. Assad with someone Iranians, that they yeah, would prefer. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, let's talk about because you mentioned John Bolton. Let's talk about John Bolton. We saw last um, in that in that uh, clip from the news, the president sitting there with his generals and military advisors, and there was John Bolton immediately to his left. His first day of work, heck of a way to start. Uh, national security advisor. What about John Bolton and what we've just been talking about or other issues? You know John Bolton, I believe, pretty well. I admire him greatly. Uh, when I was president of the Claremont Institute, we gave him our statesmanship award uh, because we admired his you know, the way he looked at the world. He he appears to be, I, I don't know him well, wouldn't call him a friend. Not that I, I don't have you know friendly feelings toward the guy. I just don't know him that well. But I have admired him for some time. And the reason is he seems not doctrinaire about anything. A principled man but not doctrinaire about the use of military power and is a, a prudent man, it appears, and will be a good counsel to the president when it comes to national security. Mm-hmm. And seems pretty realistic about how the uh, how the world works, pretty realistic, very realistic about how the world works. And I like the fact that he's a civilian yep. and okay. a man in... Um, Nothing against our our generals, but our generals are very good at being generals, typically. And civilian control of these things can be a very useful matter. And the fact that Bolton is not part of the military-industrial complex and is not wed to the, the mistakes of the past 20 years or stuck in how we've been doing things for the last 20 years will be a good thing. I think for the president, but he he, uh, he has a clear he has a clear mind about our enemies. That's important. Yep, yep. Uh, do you have any sense of what he's advising the president on uh, in regard to Syria? What he's saying? No, I okay, don't. Yeah. My guess is he's 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 still like like all of us trying to get his mind wrapped yeah. around all this. Yeah, and it, it, it wouldn't be surprising if if this attack was simply designed to test him too. He's called a neocon, or or at least thrown in with the so-called neocons, the people who go out of their way to engage in military actions whenever possible. And so was this designed to provoke a guy like John Bolton to encourage the president to take military action in Syria? A guy like Bolton is not going to simply fall for that, nor is the president. They're going to study this, see what's really going on, and they'll pursue what the president has been saying about Syria, which is, is this in our interest? And I, I'd rather have a John Bolton doing that than nearly anyone in the country. Good. Except for Bill Bennett, of course. Yeah, well, they, we're, like we're both guilty of being neocons or former neocons, I guess not anymore. I mean, Bolton, I was for Iraq, and Bolton was for Iraq, and uh, and so on, but the, you know, the world has changed and some lessons have been learned. I was very much against the nation-building idea, uh, as announced in that second inaugural. I understood the fight terrorism, but once it got started, I said, all right, fine, let's get as much democracy as we can and supported it. But, yeah, building nations. Well, there's, go- 
there, yeah, there's going into Iraq and then there's staying in Iraq yeah, and fighting right. the war the way we did. Yeah, that's right. Because you can't you, you can't judge the going in from how, what you actually do once you're there. Yeah, sure, sure, right. So, all right, let's uh, let's move on to uh, not uh, domestic but other international matters. Um, my friend Larry Kudlow, and you know Larry some, is now the uh, chief economic advisor of the president, and he. Uh, he had an interesting debut this week, saying that the announced tariffs were, well, first of all, not operational, and uh, might not ever come, and that this was a bargaining position, and so on. Um, what do you make of this uh, vis-a-vis China? Is this the right man for the job, by the way, Larry Kudlow? And what should our posture be on this uh, incredible trade imbalance with uh, with China? Well, certainly Kudlow's the right man for the job. Uh, again, because he is, a, he is a man who, over his career, has demonstrated a capacity not to be doctrinaire about any one single issue, but a, to judge things based on the circumstances you find yourself in. And again, that doesn't mean you're not principled. It means you can adapt to whatever's going on. He's a free trader. He believes in free markets. He says the president does. I believe them on both accounts. Tariffs and the president's talk of tariffs and his proposal regarding tariffs is a message to the Chinese that he means business. What else is going to get their attention? You can go to summits. You can have all sorts of meetings with the Chinese. But if there's no potential for uh, retribution, like with tariffs, they're not going to change their behavior. The mere fact that the president has said this puts them on notice. And what did President Xi say? And that was, they're going to take a hard look at everything that they're doing. Don't develop a Cold War mentality. Let's take a look at this. Let's make sure that, you know, we don't have any kind of any kind of trade war over all these things. So, so far, what the president has been suggesting has gotten the Chinese attention. Yeah. That's a great thing. That's a great thing for us. And you would expect it to be something that serious. The good news about a Larry Kudlow is that he sees in the Chinese the fact that, or I believe he sees, they're engaging in economic warfare against the United States. They steal our technology. That alone is a very, very big thing. Yeah, sure is. The, tariff, the, the tariffs and, and the trade imbalance, Trump's right, that's, that's a series of bad trade deals on the one hand and over-regulation of American industry on the other that simply makes it uh, more affordable to produce things in other countries, including China, than here in the United States. So what has Trump done? Trump has reduced regulation, made America more competitive. He's helped improve energy costs. He's helped, you know, inspire American entrepreneurs to get reengaged in the economy. And he's told the Chinese and others that we're serious about being exploited. I think that's just a win all the way around. And a guy like Larry Kudlow, who understands the seriousness, will only make uh, those policies more effective and really make sure the Chinese are not exploiting America, whether it's trade or finance. I mean, right now, the Chinese are talking about coming to the American capital markets. Yeah. yeah. Or it is... It's yeah. said all, almost a trillion dollars of of sovereign and state-owned enterprise debt over the next three years. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. 
You know, I, uh, I've i been watching as the um, media has been playing this uh, Nebraska farmer card, you know, uh, showing all these big farmers in Nebraska and Iowa saying, what's this going to mean? And they say, oh, it will be terrible tariffs because, you know, we export so much grain and so much uh, pork and so on to the Chinese. Uh, I did not notice until a friend sent it to me. It was something done by the Luntz uh, Research Group that something like 63%. It's the only poll I've seen. 63% of Americans support the president in this. Um, You know, they understand what the Chinese have been doing, and they support the president. You would never guess from watching the mainstream media uh, that there's uh, pretty broad, uh, pretty deep support. This was just one poll, but... Uh, you know, 63, 64% is not, uh, is not trivial in, in any uh, uh, reasonably based poll. Right, because the American people sense that the president's on their side. Yeah, that's right. And that, and that, and that when he proposes tariffs, he's doing it to protect their interests. Right. And he's trying to strike a better bargain on behalf of them, all of which is true, by the way. So they're, they're supporting the president for all the right reasons. Yep. Let, so that, 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 that's all to the good. Let's run through a couple other issues. We're getting close to the end of our time here. Uh, and we thank you, Brian, again, for making yourself available. Uh, just a couple of lightning round, I guess, as they say on TV. Uh, speaking of, you use the word sovereign. You would use it in a different sense. But what about sovereignty uh, and sovereignty of the United States? Border, uh, what's your governor? You're a resident of California. What's your governor going to do about uh, helping out here with the California National Guard and, and other things? Your thoughts on that? Well, California is deeply confused about uh, the state and sovereignty and what all these things mean. Uh, they are so wed to political correctness and the idea that America is not not merely a land of opportunity, but a land for everybody in the world who wants to come here yeah, yeah. Uh, without regard to the safety and security of its citizens yeah. or the prosperity of its citizens. I think uh, California is, I don't want to say it's gone politically and, and in other ways, but right now it has not suffered the consequences the way other states have and it still enjoys a great deal of prosperity but it doesn't see consequences of widespread illegal yeah. immigration yeah. or at least its elites don't its elites don't see that everyday working californians understand the harmful effects of illegal immigration but the silicon valley types and the hollywood types they don't see what's really going on here yeah you got and some interesting Cal- yeah you got some interesting reaction though uh, a rebellion against the state uh, from some communities, uh, Los Alamitos, some Orange County uh, communities, others saying, hey, we're with the Constitution. We're with the federal government on this. Well, local governments have to live with yeah, that's right. the result of that's these right. illegal immigrants and the consequences and people living on the streets. And Orange County has, has seen it very plainly. But there, there is going on in America right now a real debate about what it means to be a citizen. And yep. Who, yep. who is this country for? Is it for Americans or is it for just anybody who can cross that border? I agree. And I think this is going, this is the issue, I think, that stirs people's hearts, perhaps more than any other. It, all the way from kneeling at NFL games to the flag to protecting our borders to sanctuary cities. And I think it is a huge issue. And I think it's one the president uh, really can and should prevail on. That's my view. 
Yeah, it, it, it's the one that got him elected. Yeah, that's right. And it's why building the wall is so important. Yeah, and not just building not and not just building the wall, but enforcing our immigration policies in such a way that the rule of law is uh, enforced. And we're not doing that adequately today. President sees that and he's doing his best to try to fix that. I want to close with an idea that I hatched with uh, my sons last night. And, you know, this just could be wacky, but um, I've listened to you propose ideas which are wacky. No, I know you've never proposed anything wacky. I'm, I'm kidding you. It's my friend Brian. Usually, dur- usually during a football usually game. Usually during I a football many, game, yeah. Many, yeah. After, after a few yeah. margaritas. Yeah, maybe, maybe. No, I'm just kidding. But. I hear this back to Trump and back to special counsels and all that. Rather than firing uh, Rosenstein by, as a way of firing Mueller, how about this? President says, okay, special counsel's works is going on. I am going to appoint a special counsel to investigate the Iran deal. You know, the billion dollars that went on the pallet, you know, in cash. You remember that? Plus all the other sure. things. Yes, I'm going to do that. I'm also going to appoint a special counsel to look into the Hillary Clinton business uh, and what went on what went on there. Just focused on the Hillary Clinton business and the Clinton Foundation and the effect of the Clinton Foundation on the Obama State Department. Then I want to appoint a special counsel to look into the shenanigans at the Justice Department and the FBI. You know, the Strzok and Lisa Page stuff, the McCabe stuff. Yeah. And... Maybe a couple of others. So you guys want government by special counsel. We're going to have government by special counsel. Maybe one a week I'm going to appoint. If that's the way you want to play ball, that's the way we'll play ball. I mean, I know this would be just horrible in some sense, giving up, you know, the way we're supposed to run our country. But maybe it's not a totally zany idea. Uh, Stay on offense. Appoint these special counsels with special charges to look into the transgressions or alleged transgressions, we could say real transgressions, of the other side. And do four or five or six of them. The Iran thing still sticks in my craw. You know how much payoff and payback to all the wrong people went on here, including all that cash. That's my thought of the day. Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good impulse. Uh, but what of a course, bad idea. You, you, well, you don't you, you don't really want the government run by special counsel. I know of course. I don't. I know I don't. And, and, you know, but and you, you guys want to play like it, this? We'll play like this. You know, I, right? But I, would it be Jeff Sessions directing the the hiring of special counsels? Oh no! You, I you, guess, you, might, I mean, you, might, you might as well fire him while you're at it. You know, and and just well, that that that, that might not be crazy either. But and point Michael Cohen. The, the thing, you know, I, I mean, I'm, this is a wacky. You know, uh, no, no, right, 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 right. But here's what you're pointing to that's not being done. Who should be operationally doing what you're describing? Yeah, yeah. and that is the U.S. Congress. Yeah, okay. It's Congress that has oversight of all these things. Yeah. Where is the U.S. Congress and the investigative committees there? doing what you're describing where were they during the obama years where was trey gowdy well investigate investigating the very things you're talking about well let me answer where 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 was the where where was the foreign relations committee under ed royce or so many others all right well let me answer it part because i was i saw two very angry congressmen on tv recently mark meadows and jim jordan both the freedom caucus and they're going nuts they're 
going after all these questions I'm talking about, but they can't get the documents from the FBI. You know, they're dribbling out these documents. They're basically in contempt. Um, but, you know, the Congress is limited its powers. I mean, I do think there are some people there trying to get this stuff, this information. Maybe you need a special counsel to do it. Maybe it's not as wacky an idea as I think. I don't know. Well, no, look, they can bring articles of impeachment against Jeff Sessions if they're serious. They keep on <sighs> the Congress keeps on. The, the Congress has enormous powers. They don't want to use them. That's the embarrassing part yeah, here. Yeah. They have powers to investigate every single thing you described, and they have not done it. If Jeff Sessions and the Justice Department is not giving them documents, they need to bring someone to account. The only guy up there that I can tell really doing his job is Devin Nunes, who is a very serious guy trying to get to the bottom of this. Word that he had colleagues who were also willing to fight. And if you don't have colleagues who are willing to fight, then it's a very hard slog. Yeah. But I, I think you're right that these are the very things you need to investigate. But it's the Congress that that is well suited if the executive branch is not going to do it itself. I totally agree. Jeff Sessions and the Justice Department, if it were thinking the right way, could also investigate these things, and they wouldn't need yeah, special counsel. Just... But the, politi- the political body is the Congress, right? Yeah, They're the I ones just... that could be, ma- be making the most effective case against you know past transgressions. Yeah, one would hope. I just don't know what happened with Sessions there. I mean, I used to have him on my radio show all the time. He was such, such a strong chairman, so clear, first one out for Trump, so... You know, clear and refreshing and brave, and just seems to have been neutered in in this in this whole process. You know, starting with and maybe ending with his uh, you know recusal. So I, I just don't know. We got to end it there, Brian. Uh, this was great tour de force conversation on a variety of things, and all I can say is stay tuned. We need you. We need your voice. My gosh, you know, we may have to talk to you tomorrow. I don't. Uh, Lord knows. Well, it's great to be with you, Bill. It's always such a time to talk to you. Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's change direction. Let's talk about education. The latest NAEP results are out, and here to talk about them is Chester E. Finn, Distinguished Senior Fellow, President Emeritus, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Check out the Fordham Institute for interesting statistics and essays on education. I find it a very valuable resource. He is also a Senior Fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Tell, Tell the audience what NAEP is, what it stands for, and what it is. Yeah, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, uh, also known as the Nation's Report Card. It's been around since the uh, 1960s, actually, as a periodic measure of student achievement in American elementary and secondary schools. Uh, It's been much more regularized since about 2001, when Congress basically mandated that at least in reading and math in grades four and eight, these this sample-based national test would be given every two years. Uh, and uh, then results would be reported for the country and also for individual states uh, for grades four and eight. It's the, the test is also given to 12th graders, but uh, that's not reported at the state level. And these latest scores do not, as far as I know, include 12th grade. Right. Uh, this was an area I, rem- I remember distinctly uh, when I was secretary and you were assistant secretary. This was an area you wanted to beef up 
Uh, and, and we did. And we did. We, and we did. We made it. We, we, we frankly, we, we, with the help of the Congress, improved it quite a lot. Uh, there was no state-by-state reporting, for example, until we got that law changed. There were no what, what are called achievement levels, which are kind of like uh, standards built into the score reporting. Uh, that didn't exist before right. uh, we got the law changed. So um, it, it, it got a lot better in 1988 uh, with the, the law, and then those changes began to kick in in the early 90s, and then this regularization of the of giving it uh, started about 10 years after that. I think I should explain, you can amplify that uh, to our audience, conservative audience mostly, that we thought this was a proper function of government. Not all things done by the department necessarily were, but this was to be able to measure and assess how our students were actually doing, because we were getting this uh, Lake Wobegon effect uh, where, you know, every, well, right. you know everything the, was great from... You know, everyone was above the, average, right? <laughs> yeah. The state, the, the the test the states were using uh, themselves um, were not telling the truth, right? Uh, and so, the national assessment was already a respectable and respected instrument, and uh, because it's just based on a sample, it doesn't actually affect anybody's child or individual school. Right. Um, but it wasn't terribly informative for governors who wanted to know how their state was doing. Yeah, that's right. Um, because there was no ability to make state comparisons, and now there is. Speaking of governors and uh, governor spouses, do you remember who the chairman and co-chairman of the group <laughs> were whom we well, appointed? One Democrat, one Republican? Yeah, the, the, it was known as the Alexander James Commission that did the, the review that led to the changes. Uh, the vice chairman was uh, Lamar Alexander, uh, governor, former governor, outgoing governor of Tennessee, uh, and um, a member of the commission, though she was not exactly a diligent uh, attendee at the meetings, was Hillary Clinton yeah. of all people. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The chairman us. was the chairman was a, a respected academic named Thomas James. Right. Exactly. Oh, good. You you correct me. Correct. Right. Um, but but I, serious point. When you go out in the hustings and talk to people about uh, educators, particularly about what's going on, one of the things they'll say is there are tests, too many tests, too many assessments. This is if you're going to have only one, this is the one you'd have. Right. This is is this still the best the state of the art, this you is, think? This is the best for big picture. Right. Big uh, picture. Right. Yeah, it doesn't tell you anything about your kid or your kid's teacher or your kid's school. Right. And in my view, those are important things to know also. But if you're a, if you're a policymaker, a governor, a legislator, a, a state superintendent, or a congressman for that matter, president, secretary of ed, um, this is the big picture. Um, this is the, by far the best big picture uh, test that there is. Good. All right, so the scores are out uh, for, what, 2017? And uh, yeah. what, what are they? What do we see? Well, the big news, uh, sadly, is flat. Uh, nothing much changed from 2015. And if you go back before that, nothing much changed. Uh, we're looking at a lot of flat lines. Uh, you can see little blips up. For example, the only national blip up between 15 and 17 was eighth grade reading. Um, and it went up a little bit, but it had gone down a little bit in 2015. So uh, it's that, that, that sort of still turns in, into a flat line. Uh, the, the only good news I found in these results at the national level um, is that uh, uh, smart kids, high achievers, have actually been making some gains over the, not just the last two years, but the last 10 years. Um, 
And uh, so if you're interested in sort of the gifted and talented world, um, th- there, there's some positive um, uh, information here. The, the, one of the, the highest level of the uh, NAEP standards is called advanced, and we're seeing a steadily increasing, though still way too small, uh, percentage of kids making it into the advanced level. And that's even true of minorities. Um, so that's a bit of good news. But in terms of national averages, uh, it's flat, 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 and has been for way too long. And it's, 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 Basic, proficient, and advanced, is that correct? Those Basic, proficient, and advanced. And there's there's been very little change at the basic and proficient levels. Um, and there's been small gains at the advanced level is the at, simplest way to... At, at, now, all, at all grade levels? That is, is there is there an uh, increase in advanced at the 4th and 8th as well as the 12th, or the 12th and 8th as well as the 4th? I don't... I don't have new 12th grade data, so that's too bad from this re- this release. But, All right, but uh, from 2015 or 16? Yeah, um, and um, yes, uh, 12th is unfortunately increasing the least, so we're still having the biggest troubles with getting gains in the high schools. Um, fourth and eighth, we see new data here, um, and the advanced level is, is looking good, but you know, every every uh, silver cloud has a dark lining. Uh, the uh, even as every group is getting more kids into the advanced level, the so-called achievement gaps or excellence gaps are actually getting uh, getting wider because the the white and Asian kids are getting getting into the advanced level faster than the black and Hispanic kids. So the black and Hispanic kids are improving, but uh, the white and Asian kids are getting more advanced faster. I was looking at a chart, uh, and you can guess where I'm going, over the last still 30, even 40 years. Yeah. And it's pretty flat. Um, That's right. The achievement. But there's another line you could put in there on expenditures, uh, which is not flat. Um, how we no, how, how are we doing on expenditures? <laughs> superbly. Uh, superbly. I mean, there was a, a little bit of a dip around 2008 with the so-called Great Recession. Uh, but the big picture, long term, is uh, we're spending tons more, uh, multiples, multiples more on kids' uh, education than we were, uh, and we're not getting gains commensurate anywhere near commensurate with the expenditure level. This is the ROI. If you were looking at it as a, as an investor or yeah. businessman, is is not very good. Why is that? Um, I, I'm going to have a, a discussion here to time this podcast is out. It will have already taken place probably with, with the Secretary of Education. We're going to talk about these scores. But uh-huh. one of the things I want to ask is why has it been so flat so long? Is it is it mostly about schools and education, or is it mostly about things outside of schools and education? You've pointed out you know, the number yeah. of hours you spend in school and homework is small relative to the number of hours in a day. What what explains the flatness? How much how I much mean, is explained by school? How much is explained by family, uh, television, media, whatever? Well, we don't. It, we don't it, it's impossible to be sure. Uh, let's let's right. let's uh, be honest about that. Math is almost entirely the work of schools. Um, now, in the last few years, it's been possible for families that wanted to get Khan Academy and other things for their kid outside of school to learn math. Um, but for the most part, kids learn math in school. Reading is a more complicated story um, because it also has a lot to do with whether kids actually read. And 
uh, that has a whole lot to do with um, are they uh, are their parents reading to them? Are they getting into a reading habit? Are they completely uh, absorbed with video games and movies and and other stuff on their screens instead of reading? Um, so I think the the reading stuff has a lot more kind of family and and cultural and outside influence. Uh, the math stuff is pretty much the work of schools. And incidentally, for a while, we were seeing decent gains in math. Um, in the uh, early 2000s, there was a good bit of uptick in math. Most analysts think because accountability was kicking in, and we were actually holding schools responsible for their results. Um, but even math has flattened out the last few years, and it's 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 hard to know why. Two questions: Are, are there people who say, "Hey, look, in this age of technology and you know, and gizmos and gadgets and Facebook and all that, we don't really need need to learn how to read so well or proficiently. You can always look it up. There's no need for well. There's certainly people who say that about the the knowledge base. You don't actually need to possess any content, right? Uh, because you can always look it up. I don't think I've heard anybody say you don't need to, you don't need to re- be okay. able to read. You don't need to know anything. And of course, if you are Edie Hirsch or you or okay. me, for that matter, yeah, uh, you understand that you don't read very well unless you know something. Yeah, that's right. That's where I was going. Which is how much of this is due to uh, what am I calling it properly? Formalism, the new formalism, which is the point is not to learn content, to learn something. But to learn right. how to learn uh, is the is the very popular phrase. But you learn right. how to learn I, by learning something, right? Correct. And I think that what what could even be termed a war, the war on content has certainly had a negative effect on advanced reading. Uh, you can learn, you know, the decoding, the phonics stuff, uh, without content. But uh, once you get beyond about third grade. Uh, you don't read better unless you have a knowledge base to relate things to because you don't do comprehension unless you know something to start with. And, and that something, am I correct, can be just about anything? I mean, just it, it, yeah. it can be. Uh, it can be. But what you're gonna, if what you're going to be reading about is, you know, is science fiction and fantasy, then I guess you need to know something about science fiction. Uh, but if what you're going to be reading about in, let's say, fifth grade is um, the, the early bits of U.S. history, then you're handicapped if you've never heard of the Revolutionary War or George Washington or the Declaration of Independence. Okay, let's let's pick up on that just for a second, um, which is uh, early American history, an area of special interest of mine. Um, yeah. There was, I guess, some effort to have the NAEP do, do some work there. Um, I suspect that as bad as our reading and math scores are, we'd be doing even worse. Um, I think there's some evidence when it comes to knowledge of U.S. history, civics, and the like. Is that true? That is true, and NAEP does periodically, though not often enough, assess uh, history and civics. Uh, and the results are really pretty pretty grim. Uh, I mean, they're very flat and very low. At uh, um, And uh, it's um, I think a big problem. It's a a, a, a plausible explanation uh, is that schools aren't teaching it much and aren't accountable for it much. Yeah. One reason they're not teaching it much, frankly, is because we are overemphasizing reading and math. Okay. Um, 
and there really is some pressure on the curriculum, at least in a six-hour school day, there's pressure on the curriculum. Um, another reason is that our accountability system holds schools and teachers uh, responsible for whether their kids are learning reading and math. Um, but state after state has been doing away with any kind of accountability for social studies, yeah. for history and geography and civics. Gets harder, too, doesn't it, to teach a it, common history with so much balkanization in the public? Absolutely. And that's perhaps one reason they're, they're, they're doing away with it. But, but, you know, the war on testing, the anti-testing, the too much testing yep. movement yep. Um, has led states, a lot of them, uh, including Maryland, where I'm on the state board of ed, to say, well, we're stuck with the reading and math test. We can't do anything about that because that's federal law. But let's ease up on the social studies testing. And that means we're easing up on the accountability for whether kids are learning anything. Yeah. Let's go back to the big picture. Um, if, if you look at this flat, this very flat line here for 10, 20, 30, even 40 years, relatively yeah. flat, going forward, what do we do? Let me put it this way. What is it we know or have learned or that research has established that if we made more common practice, we would see this flatness get better? Curriculum, teacher quality, accountability. Um, I, I, I think uh, school choice, at least the ability to leave a bad school, and um, some degree of, of, of kind of common purpose between school and home. Um, you would see gains. Where is content in there uh, in what you just said? Content is, content is part of curriculum, curriculum. And, okay. uh, which was the first thing I mentioned. Okay, and, okay. Uh, Places that have actually, uh, states that have worked their way towards some kind of common curriculum with quality in it and content in it um, are actually seeing some progress. And I think that's an important next step. And it's actually not a, not an expensive one. Uh, instead of leaving each district and each school and each teacher to decide what it is the kids should actually learn, um, I think this is a legitimate state function, at least in the, in the, in the core subjects of the curriculum. Yeah. How are you doing in Maryland on that? Not very well. Every district of the 24 districts in the state basically sets its own curriculum, and yeah. they, they are highly resistant. This is, this is where I think local control gets in trouble. They are highly resistant to having um, the U.S. history taught in Montgomery County be the same as the U.S. history taught in Prince George's County. Well, they want the history of Prince George's County rather than the history of Montgomery County? Or the <laughs> history of the U.S.? They want a freedom to do their own thing, and that means that you cannot count on the children of Maryland learning U.S. history. Yeah. Is, is this a problem? We're, we're back on this, but let's stay with it a minute. Is this a problem throughout the country, that, that we no longer think there is a common history of the American people? Any, uh, I think it's a huge purpose? problem. In, yeah. I, it, it's a huge problem in the culture and in the, and, in, in the, in the society, and it reverberates uh, into the schools. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons that I've become a fan of things like the Advanced Placement Program is because it actually, without any government involvement, amounts to a, a pretty decent national curriculum in U.S. history. Yeah. Uh, for Good. but those, Good. that's for advanced high school students, not for everybody. Yeah, it should be everybody. Uh, yep. State by state, I know you've you've made some very eloquent uh, statements about the need for comparison state by state in the twelfth grade. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but given what we know in the fourth grade and eighth grade, is there, mm -hmm. are there bright spots? Are there some states that are doing this right or pretty close to right? I've been doing a little research on this for this yeah. this time. What, what do you say? And then I'll tell you what I what I have found. 
Well, the two states that have been cheering themselves for gains have been, in, in the last couple of days, have been Florida and, of all places, Mississippi, um, which actually have shown some gains since 2015. And my colleague Mike Petrilli's looked back for 2013 to see about four-year gains, and they, they, they have some respectable gains over four years as well. Um, so I think that they are... Um, feeling better about themselves. Um, a number of states have gotten a little bit worse. Uh, so I'm not going to uh, sing the praises of any other places right now. I think this two-year time horizon, incidentally, is pretty is pretty limited. Yeah, but getting better from from what base? Because you didn't mention Massachusetts, but does Massachusetts still lead the pack in the United States in terms of well? I looked at somebody's. Yes and no. Uh, Yes, if you uh, don't make any demographic adjustments, if you look at, at, at kids who are sort of similar by race and income, Florida has gained on Massachusetts in at least two out of these four measures. The, uh, Interesting. The yeah, um, it, Massachusetts benefits from a lot of things, um, but including. Um, in terms of its average, uh, the fact that it doesn't have relatively as many minority kids in it, and and therefore their average is higher. Let's look at Florida. Uh, what is yeah. it, what is it that they've done in Florida? Is this local leadership? Is it state leadership? Is it some reforms? I, is this Jeb Bush? Is this uh, Rick Scott? Uh, well, Jeb Bush says it's Jeb Bush. There's no doubt about that. Okay. Uh, okay. And <laughs> at least one vote, right? Okay. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, I think it's state wide changes that have been driven from Tallahassee that um, the by and large the districts have um, had to put in place but uh, but we're you know there's a little bit of NAEP which looks at something like 24 large cities and a couple of large Florida cities have gains of their own including Miami so the uh, superintendent in Miami is pretty proud of himself today Miami Jacksonville is what I saw yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and uh I think I think Hillsborough County, which I believe is Tampa, uh, also showed some gains. Um, so the Florida has done a bunch of things. They've okay. they've done um, they've done uh, school choice. Uh, they've done statewide standards and accountability. Um, they've worked on teacher quality. They've uh, worked on accelerating kids who uh, are smart. Um, I don't think they've done anything that resembles a statewide curriculum, and I think they probably should, but uh, they've pretty much stayed on course, um, which is the other important point, is that they don't sort of wiggle, wiggle around with their reforms and their policies. They've, uh, they've been on a pretty straight course for about 15 years now, and that was, incidentally, also the story in Massachusetts, is that you, you can't keep changing your, your recipe and expect the yeah. cake to bake very well. Yeah, you got to stick with it. And uh, now Florida's mostly stuck with it under Republican leadership. Massachusetts managed to stick with its its formula under uh, two different sets of political yeah. leaders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, last question: uh, When we do this podcast in the year twenty twenty, looking at the twenty nineteen results, are we going to say more flat? Still flat? It would be it would be hazardous to predict anything else. I'm afraid yeah. uh, we've got too much experience with flat for me to suddenly give you a rosy scenario and say it's going to get better fast. Why um, can't which, why why can't we take what works? You recall the phrase from our days. Yes, I do. Why, why can't we take what works if we 
great degree know what works in schools and just do it across the board. Why, why can't we do what works? You know, I was reading an essay you guys, Fordham, put out the other, other week about direct instruction, you know, yep. much maligned direct instruction. Turns out it works. Yep. You know, if it's a good teacher, it works. And if other things are right. Um, so why don't we just why don't we just do the right things like they do in medicine? Well, you remind me of the old joke in The Lone Ranger about what do you mean we, Kimasabi? Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the resistance to doing the right thing is intense among teachers, administrators, local school boards, teacher unions, uh, ed schools. Um, the system is like a dinosaur that um, it doesn't um, evolve. Uh, and so you occasionally get a state leader or a local district leader or a school leader uh, who knows what works and insists on doing it. And, and that, then you see improvement for a while. And then that person retires or is voted out of office. And then the uh, what I'm going to what you call the blob, most people call the establishment, um, sort of pulls it back down into the bucket. Yeah. And uh uh, things don't stay changed because the, the 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 so much of the system doesn't want them to change. In, in Maryland, for example, uh, local control keeps statewide things from happening, and teacher union pressure keeps the legislature from allowing anything to change. Got it. Yeah, I remember calling it the blob. Now, the only correction I'd make is I wasn't exactly accurate. I should have called it the blob from the swamp back then. The blob from the swamp. <laughs> Just to yeah. up, update it. Chester the Finn. creature from the lagoon, yes. <laughs> That's right, creatures from the lagoon. Chester Finn, thank you very, very much. I hope when we talk in, in 2020 we will have some uh, different and, and better news. I look forward to that. All right. That was Checker Finn, Distinguished Senior Fellow, President Emeritus, Thomas B. Fordham Institute, Senior Fellow, Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Well, that's just about it for this episode, unless something else happens at the White House in the next uh, 20 minutes or two hours. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You know, you can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.